Welcome to Wednesday Night at Faith Assembly, featuring the ministry of Senior Pastor Phil Goss. We're glad you've joined us. Well, normally I pick a theme to preach on tonight. I just want to pick a chapter to preach on, but the theme within the chapter has to do with unity. Ho-hum. Unity? What? Why is that important? Well, I'll tell you why that's important. It's important because the night before Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified, he prayed in the garden, and he prayed not only for the disciples that were with him, but he prayed for us. And what he prayed to the Father was, I pray that you would make them one. Now, that sounds like a pretty simple prayer, doesn't it? I mean, like, we're one, right? One big happy family, one church, one everything. But I want to tell you that being one doesn't just happen. It takes intentionality, and the Bible has taught us not only how to do it, but that we are to pursue it. So I want to help us with that tonight. Take a look at Philippians 2. Is there any, or assuming there is, any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then Paul says, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Other translations say being like-minded, and I'll tell you why I like that word in just a moment. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, loving one another, and working together or striving together with one mind and one purpose. And in a nutshell, in one word, that's unity. We strive for it. We seek it because that's what Jesus prayed that we would have so that he could receive glory and so his kingdom would be advanced here on earth. Now, though this verse, the first verse, seems to be starting out with a question. In fact, if you, if you read it in the King James, it says, is there any encouragement, any hope, any comfort? It's a rhetorical question. In other words, it's a question that, that the answer is obvious to everybody and it doesn't need an answer. And so what he's really saying as a result of that is since there's encouragement, since there's comfort, since there are all of those things, togetherness, tender, compassionate hearts, those things can enable you, they make it possible for us to be like-minded, of the same mind. He's basically saying we can be one in thought and action, and direction. And like-mind means thinking the same way, one in purpose, and one in direction. Like-minded is the Greek word phroneo, not that you, that means anything to you, but what it really means is to, ha- to think, to, to have a mindset, to be minded toward. And the activity that's represented by that word doesn't just, mi- doesn't just mean thinking about it, but also willing to do it being willing to be like-minded and to enjoy the affection and the joy that comes along with it. So, having the same thinking about this, how do a group of humans do that? Let me ask you something. Do you think you agree with me on everything? No. Do you think I agree with you on everything or each other? No. That's not what the Bible's talking about because there will always be disagreements among us. But what it's talking about is singleness of purpose and direction and mind and values. And Romans 12 says you do that by changing the way you think into the way that God thinks. Romans 12 too, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Do you want to change your behavior? Change the way you think. That's how it works. 
Then it says, you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That might be the most important verse to us personally, because it's the key to Christ-likeness. It's the key to unity of purpose and thought. It's a really, really important thing. Now, on your sheets, I've given you a diagram. You've seen it before. Almost every time that I speak, I include this diagram, because in counseling, it's invaluable. If you get this, you will have gotten your money's worth tonight, and you won't even need to see me in counseling. But it's really, really important, and it's based on that scripture to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because here's how it works. And I think they've got it to put up on the screen. If, if not, it's in your paper. Thank you, guys. So, so we start down at the bottom. How can I do that? There we are. Start at the bottom with, with core beliefs. What's your core belief about something? Your core belief about something is what fuels your thoughts and your thinking. If you really believe something, every thought you have about it after that point will be based on that core belief. The way you think about something fuels your emotions. Then it's how you feel about it. I believe this deeply. I think this about it. And I, it brings me joy or it makes me angry or it gives me purpose. But our emotions are fueled by what we think about. That's why the Bible says change your behavior by changing the way you think. Because guess what? In the next one, your emotions, more often than not, inform and dictate your behavior and your actions. Don't they? We don't do things we don't want to do. We don't do things we're not happy about. We have the emotions of that. So here's the key. In, and, and by the way, then the last thing about relationships is when your core beliefs give, issue your thoughts and your thinking, which, imply, which then work on your emotions, which then drive your behaviors and your actions, if they're the good behaviors and actions, your relationships are wonderful. So that in a nutshell, that's how that works. But the principle is, if you want to change your behavior, change the way you think. So how do we become one? We have to change the way we think. We take our core beliefs and we replace them with God's core beliefs because then your thinking is based on God's core values and beliefs, not yours. That's how we do it. It's that simple. And that's how we become one in Christ and pursue unity. So a couple things about unity and, and, and same-mindedness. Number one, we have to strive. We have to work for and work toward like-mindedness. So first of all, pursue it. Make it your job to be like-minded with the people who call themselves Christians. Romans 12, 18, do, it's an action verb, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Seek it, strive for it. And then share and daily immerse yourself in that same source of truth that all of the rest of us are doing. There won't be unity of heart and purpose and like-mindedness unless we all start with the same core belief. That's why scripture reading is so important. That's why daily time in the Bible is so important because it doesn't just fuel your thinking and actions, it fuels everybody else's. And if we'll all do it, we will all be like-minded because we all have the same core value, the core values that God gave us in his word. So share and immerse yourself in the source of truth. The next point is have the same goals and values. Whose? God's. Have his goals, have his values, and then share them with one another in the body of Christ. Avoid the things that disunify us and keep us divided. There are things that you hold very dear. There are opinions you have. There are things you are passionate about that divide us when we get together. 
I've done it, haven't you? You get into a room and you start talking about something that's controversial and the way you feel about it is a little bit different than they feel about it and guess what you just did? I've told you this story before. I'll just use it as an illustration because I think this is important. We, uh, at our last church, we, um, we had a, a women's holiday gala and it was wonderful and the women dressed up and they did these wonderful tables and we, we do that here. But, but at our last church, uh, and the guys serve, at our last church, the guys, we did all of our serving and the program thing was supposed to start and we walked in and, and I'll just say that that church was filled with a bunch of very con- politically conservative people. And they began to talk about this guy and that guy and I don't know about this. And all of a sudden, one guy who was a fairly new believer looked at me and said, I guess I'll have to find another church because I quite clearly don't belong with you people. Politics divided the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? There are many other things that will divide the kingdom of God. So one of the ways that we preserve unity is to encourage one another in the things that we believe in. You don't have to think like everybody does. You Democrats, you don't have to think like Republicans. Republicans, you don't have to think like Democrats. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, we don't do things or say things that disunify us. We're striving for like-mindedness. Does that make sense? So we have to work toward it. The other thing that we have to do, if we're going to be one single-minded, we have to forgive How many times has pastor preached on that? We still don't always get it. Forgiveness unlocks the door to a fence that's between us. That's why you have to confess your sins to God when you you sin. Not because if you don't, that sin will send you to hell, but because your sins have been forgiven. But that sin, that offense, puts a wall between you and God, who's holy and can't abide it. How do you get rid of the wall? Forgiveness. So in our relationships with one another, if we want to be one in spirit, one in mind, we walk in forgiveness. And then the last point that I have down there in your notes is that we turn belief into actions. We walk the talk. Take a look at John, uh, 1 John 3, 8. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions, by doing something about it. So far, so good? It's up to us. There are things that we can do. So let's, let's make a couple of really quick distinctions. Number one, unity does not mean conformity. The world wants us all to be the same. They, they want us to have the same education, the same body type, the same skin color, uh, the same hair color, the same education, the same values. They want to be the same as us, and they want us to be the same as them, right? That's conformity, that, you, that we are just like the world. But the Bible says, we just read it, don't be conformed to this world. So unity and, and oneness of thought is not conformity. In the church, our diversity, the differences in, within us, help make us stronger, not weaker. You, not everybody can teach, not everybody can serve, not everybody can change a baby's diaper, not everybody can do all those things. And God has uniquely gifted us all differently, not so we would be divided or so that we would all want to be envious of what everybody else has, but so that we can take our distinct giftings and backgrounds and experiences and blend them together in oneness of mind to advance the kingdom of God. Is that simple? Sure is. Easier said than done sometimes, but that's what is required. So unity doesn't mean conformity. It doesn't mean that everybody's the same, but that we honor our differences and use our differences to advance the kingdom. And then the second distinction is that like-mindedness is not the absence of disagreement or division. 
There will always be those things. Now, we need to seek to not have those in the things that matter. But what it really means is that we mutually participate in the forward motion of this body. That's what single-mindedness allows us to do. Here's the big point. That graphic that we looked at, that graphic that's on your piece of paper, basically shows that core beliefs lead to thinking and doing what God wants. Do you want to be one? Do you want to walk in in likeness of mind with this fellowship, with other believers all across the world? Change your thinking to God's thinking, and your thinking will change, and your behavior will change, and we will be one so that we can move in unity. Why? Because singleness of mind matters. I'm going to give you this illustration in the the opposite where it mattered. You remember the story of, of Babel, the Tower of Babel? And they all the people decided they were going to build a tower. They wanted notoriety. They wanted fame. We're going to build a tower so the whole world knows about us here in, in, in Babel, which later became Babylon. And they began to build and build. And not only did they do that, but they, they did other things. They came together in unity, in singleness of purpose. And their singleness of thought, their purposes, which were contrary to God's, aroused the suspicions of God who came down to look. And here's what he said when he was down there. He said, look, the people are united. They're one people. They have singleness of heart and singleness of vision. And they all speak the same language. And after this, this tower, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. And so what did God do? He confused their language so that they couldn't be in oneness of spirit, oneness of thought. And the whole thing fell apart. And he slowed down man's moral descent, which was happening right before his eyes in that city. So how does that apply to us? If being like-minded of one accord and one voice and one action, they could have done anything according to God, guess what we can do with the help of the Lord? Anything so long as we are single-minded of the same mind. If Satan can keep us from God's core beliefs, we are disunified and we can't accomplish anything for God. We have to strive for like-mindedness with intentionality. Let's move on to verse 3, because I think you get that, don't you? You've got to make a little bit of noise. Here, thank you very much. The more noise you make, the quicker I'll get through this. Help me out. Okay. So verse three now, Paul tells us how more now to build and arrive at unity. Verse number three, these are hard. And I'm not here. I always, I always want to make sure that I lift you and don't condemn you and make you feel badly about things. These are, these are all easier said than done, but they are required if we're going to find that unity. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. We are, aren't we? By our very nature. So one of the things we have to change in our thinking, in our core belief, is that it's okay to make it about me. It's not. So we change it to God's core belief, which is we humble ourselves. We serve one another rather than being served. So it says, don't be selfish in your thinking and don't try to impress others. You know, just, just, I'm, not, you know I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not calling anybody out. But if the shoe fits, wear it. It says, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. And don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest, an active interest in others. In other words, be considerate. The word considerate means that I consider your needs and what's going on in your life. We can't be selfish if we're always thinking about someone else. 
We can't be selfish if we're always doing things to better other people. Always seeking and doing and offering the best and the highest for them, that's the definition of love. John 13, 35 is in your notes. It says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. So we got to work on that, yes? Yes. Now verse five, because this is the bottom line of all that Paul has been saying so far. You must have the same attitude, the same mind that Christ Jesus had. He came to serve and not to be served. You know when a pastor is out of line with that? When he has his name emblazoned on his own parking spot outside the church. I don't know anybody like that. We don't do that here at this church, so I can throw that stone. I don't know anybody who does that. But what I'm saying is we don't, we don't let the pastor have his own special parking space because he's more important than everybody else. That would be self-centered. That's, that's serving someone instead of and, uh, having someone serve you instead of serving. We, we, don't, we can't do that. We, we must look for opportunities. We got servants all over this room tonight. So I, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but, but we need to be looking for opportunities to serve and not so much to be Serve. We're going to be served. People will serve us, yes, but we need to be looking for opportunities to serve one another, to humble ourselves and do that. That'll kill off self-centeredness, serving other people. Now, what happens in the next couple of verses is actually thought to be an early hymn and that Paul included it in what he's talking about in unity here because it would be so common to everybody. It would be kind of, for us, the equivalent of putting amazing grace in the middle of a scripture that we're writing or a letter that we're writing. Does that make sense? So, so this is common to those people, and, and yet at the same time, he uses it to illustrate his point. Verse 6, speaking of Jesus, though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God, the Father, as something he needed to cling to or hold on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Friends, we blow past that so quickly. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He left heaven. He came here. You've got to understand, this is the Son of God. This is an eternal being. This is a guy, one of the members of the Godhead. He's holy. He's righteous. He lives in heaven, which is wonderful. This was not a small thing for him to give up. It might have been more easy for him because he was humble and selfless like we're not, but it was a big deal, and it's an example to us. He gave up his divine privileges, his God privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being, not like the all-powerful, everlasting God, but as a human being. He came to earth. When he appeared in human form, he even then went so far as to humble himself in obedience to God the Father and died a criminal's death on the cross. Friends, that's humbling, not humiliating, humbling that God would allow himself to come to earth to be made into what he created, bound by the laws of this world, to die. That's humility. And he came to serve rather than to be served, and he showed it with his very life. I like the way the uh, uh, New International Version says it. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in a human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, the death of, this cro- of the cross. This hymn, if you will, this song that was included in here is filled with doctrine. 
It talks about the deity of Jesus being God. It talks about his willfully becoming fully human, even though he was fully God. His willingness to be humbled and to live humbly, to come here to save us, and his self-sacrifice taking our place by dying and giving his blood as the blood that covers our sin. Isn't that amazing? You can blow through those couple of verses in no time, but there's such a richness there, such an example for us of what we're supposed to be like if we're going to be of one mind and one accord based on the example and the words of Jesus. Think of it. The eternal one who can't die because only sin brings about death came to earth, walks away for that time from immorality, not immorality, immortality, so that he can purchase immortality for us. Serve rather than seeking to be served like Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says it this way, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich, rich in spirit, rich in blessings, gave up his God life, self-limited so that he would have to live a life like this so that we could live forever in his present. Talk about seeking and doing the best and the highest for someone. In the words of uh, the great theologian Billy Fusillo, that's huge. And it really is, isn't it? So let's go back then, let's back up to go through this. So go back to verse five. It says, you have to have the same attitude that Jesus had, an attitude of humility that seeks to do what is best for others. Verse number nine, therefore, because of Christ's self-humbling, God has elevated, or King James says highly exalted, or Bible scholars Greek scholars now have coined an an even more important word or a bigger word than that, said he is, God super exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names. Now, some scholars have taken that phrase and the word elevated or highly exalted to be used in a comparative sense. He, he, he took Christ who had humbled himself and, and elevated him from the lowest to the highest. And that might be true, but it could also be a superlative. A superlative is a word that, that expresses that there can't be anything greater in, in quality than that. And so what, what he, it, this may also mean is that God took him and put him to the very highest. There ain't no higher than the name of Jesus. Does that make sense? That's what happened as a result of Jesus giving his life and humbling himself. Either way, the point is that the one who assumed humility has been, very, has been elevated to the very highest of names. No one's name, no one's authority, no one's honor is greater than his. It's the highest. It's the highest name. Verse number 10. That at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven. That means both good and evil spiritual beings, by the way. They have knees. Those knees will bow. And on earth, that means you and me and all of mankind. And under the earth, that means the people who are dead and have gone on before us. And every tongue, so every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to declare and admit and cry out that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So yes, Jesus came to free us from sin, but he also came to glorify the Father. 
Now, what does that have to do with being single-minded, single-mindedness? We are supposed to have the same attitude that Jesus did to allow ourselves to be so humbled, so broken, so used that in the end, he would purchase salvation for us, eternity for us, and as a result of that, have the highest, most exalted name in heaven. And in the end, as a result of having done that, brought glory to God the Father. How does he do that? I'm glad that you asked that question. I'll tell it to you in a minute. But I, wanna, I, want, to, uh, I want to help you to put this in perspective of what we're supposed to do with that. If you've ever heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, catechism is our, our it actually comes from the word uh, catechesis, uh, is a practice of teaching the Christian faith. How many kids were Catholic in, when you were kids and you went to catechism? Catechism is simply lessons that we learn, a way, a, a form that we teach people spiritual things. So don't get, don't get messed up in that. But a group of, a group of theologians got together with the, with the intent of, of coming up with common singleness of thought, common phraseology, so that they could bring and, and, and unify the Church of England with the Church of Scotland. That's not a bad thing to try to do, Right. And so what they came up with, what's known as the Westminster Catechism, and here's one of the things that they teach so that we will understand what it is that God wants us to know. The question is asked, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end, our chief end, is the same as Christ's chief end, which is to glorify God. How do we do that? Well, verse 10 says it starts by us declaring Jesus as Lord. Can I stop for a moment? Because we got a few minutes. I want to ask you tonight, have you declared Jesus Lord in your life? Romans 10, 9, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and if you believe that God raised him from the dead, and if you will confess with your mouth out loud for the world, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. I, I beg you, if you're here tonight and you've not done that, you can do that right now, right where you are. Just ask God to forgive you. Tell him you believe Jesus is his son, that he raised Jesus from the dead, and ask Jesus to be Lord. Confess him as Lord in your life, and you too can be saved. Don't leave this place without having done that. That's where it all starts. And by the way, this is a great opportunity for me to, to give a plug for water baptism, because water baptism is one of the ways that we declare that Jesus is Lord of our life. Guess when we're having water baptism? Next week, right over here. If you have not been baptized in water, I want to encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity. The, the, the worst thing that's going to happen to you is that you're going to get wet. But the most wonderful thing that's going to happen is you will be making a testimony to everybody here and hopefully to your friends and your family that you invite that Jesus is Lord of your life. And guess who gets glory when you do that? God the Father does. That's how this is meant to work. So when we are singleness in heart and mind, and when we pursue the kingdom of God according to his standards, when we humble ourselves, when we make Jesus and confess Jesus as Lord of our life, God the Father is glorified. Acts 2, 36, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. I said it earlier, people bowing their knee and confessing Jesus is Lord is not in worship. 
It's, it is an acknowledgement of his lordship. It means I submit my sin, I submit my way to the name of Jesus and declare that he is Lord over all of those things. Then there's the issue of obedience. Paul identifies and now applies what he considered to be the central thrust of Jesus's attitude, obedience to God the Father. Verse 12, dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. Here it comes. Work, work, stop on that one. Work, work hard. Don't just work, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. It's not just that you get rewarded when you get to heaven for your works. Your works won't save you. Let's make that clarification. But the works that we do for Christ, we gain a reward for in heaven. But our works aren't even supposed to be done for the reward. The works are a demonstration, an outward manifestation of the change in our life. You, you shouldn't just get saved and get forgiveness. You ought to be changed. And the good works that you do show that you have been, and the good works that you do bring glory, bring glory to God the Father. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. What fear, that's just an acknowledgement of his awesomeness. It doesn't mean you have to be afraid. It's, it's from the Greek word phobos, we get phobia from and everything else. And in certain instances, it does mean fear. It can even mean terror. But in this one, what it means is respect, reverence, and honor. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence, the deep reverence that is due him. Verse 13, so work hard because God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. The Christian life, difficult? Come on. God will give you the desire to do it, and he'll empower you to do it. Easy, right? Easy if you obey. Easy if you pursue it. Yes, the raw materials that we need to live that kind of life and to have that unity of purpose and unity of mind are there if we will obey and if we will allow God to help us to do it. He doesn't need you to help him. He needs you to let him do what he wants to do in you obediently. Verse 14, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Trust in God. Trust in everything that he does because complaining is at the root of our failure to accept God's plan. When I'm complaining, I am resisting what God's trying to do and giving him and griping to him about it. So don't do it with anything other than a good heart. Don't complain. Don't argue so that no one can criticize you. Live clean. That means morally pure, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. So devote yourself to the practical aspects and actions of a Christ-like life so that your light will shine into the darkness of the world. Verse 16, hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, Paul says, I'll be proud that I didn't run the race in vain or that my work was useless, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. Your faithful service is an offering to God. You may have pitched a buck in the plate tonight, 
but there are more ways that we give offerings to God. And our faithful service is an offering to God. Do you want to give offerings to God? Yes. So faithful service is one of the ways that we do that. And Paul says, and I want you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joys. I skipped a verse, not intentionally, but it's important because it helps to put all of this together. How does God receive glory when we walk in unity, when we make Jesus Lord of our life? Look back in your verse. It's in, look in your sheet. It's, it's in gray, 1 Corinthians 15, because here's how it all ends. Here's where it all goes. After that, he's just told all the things that are going to happen on earth. After that, the end will come. And when he, Jesus, will turn the kingdom of God over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies between, beneath his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed, that's death. For the scriptures say, God the Father has put all things under Christ's authority. And then he says parenthetically, of course, when it says all things are under Christ's authority, it doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't include God the Father himself who gave Christ this authority. It's almost like he didn't need to say that, but he did. But here's the verse, verse number 28. Then when all things are under Christ's authority, the son will put himself under God the Father's authority so that God who gave his son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. That's how we confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because when he is Lord in his fullness over all of these things, God's plan, which he had since before time began, will not only have been fulfilled, but will result in many, many reasons for us to glorify him and honor him. To get there and to do our part, we have to have singleness of mind unity, immersing ourselves in God's word so that we're all thinking the same thing. We all have the same core beliefs, so we have the same thoughts, so that we have the same emotions, so that we produce the same results. And so our relationship is one of love and one of unity. It's not a hard thing to do, but it's something that we have to work at. So tonight, I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I want to ask you, where are you in all of this? Are you walking in unity? I mean like real unity. Are we, are we all of us walking in unity? Singleness of mind? Or are there things that are keeping us from that? Things that in our mind we need to change. We need to take our core belief about something and, and overwrite it with what God says about that thing. Are we walking in unforgiveness? Are we self-centered and taking care of us and not taking care of others? Where are you at tonight? Ask the Lord to, to really speak to you by his spirit right now. That's what this message is about. Not to make you feel bad, but to give you an opportunity to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Have you taken active steps to make God's value your values through daily Bible reading? If not, why don't you commit to the Lord to do that? Have you taken active steps to, to walk in unity, selflessness and forgiveness and, and love of one another and humility? Are there some things in there that the Lord would point out to you so that you can take this moment to give it to him and ask him to help you so that you too can walk in oneness of heart? Are you faithfully serving God as an offering to him. Are there things, not passing an offering plate or greeting at the door, I mean serving God, doing what he's called you and gifted you to do, and the results of that are an offering to God. 
Because the results of all of these things isn't just unity, it's joy, your joy. And God wants us to experience that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, tonight, we recognize that, you may, that we are imperfect. You made us perfect, sin made us imperfect. We acknowledge that. But God, our desire is to be holy, set apart like you are holy, to be of one spirit, of one purpose, of one mind, because if we will, we can accomplish anything for the kingdom. But God, we need your help to do that. And I thank you that you stand ready to do that. As we have searched our hearts tonight, and we're thinking about some of those things that we need to replace down in that core value section of our life. God, I pray that you would help us to do it with the way you think about things, the way you see things, the way you value things. And may we all, as a result of that, experience such oneness of heart, such singleness of purpose and vision, that we cannot help but go out and turn this world upside down for the glory of God the Father. Lord, we give ourselves to you tonight and ask you to do that work in each of us and to do that work in us together so that we may be pleasing to you and bring you glory and live in the joy that you've promised to us. God, help us to do it tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. See you next time. Thank you for joining us for tonight's service. If you would like to talk with someone about what you've heard, please visit our website at faith.ag or call us at 239-543-2700. If you're in the Fort Myers area and don't already have a church home, you're invited to join us for Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. We also gather on Sunday mornings at 8.15 and 10.45 a.m. Faith Assembly is located at 7101 Bayshore Road. Join us again next time for Wednesday night at Faith Assembly. Faith Assembly's Wednesday night is a production of Faith Assembly Media Tech, North Fort Myers, Florida.